There we go. Awesome. Guys, how are we doing? We have Elias and then we have uh, our guest today, Max. Why don't you introduce yourself, kind of what you do, who you are, uh, where right. you live, where you have lived, and just give us a rundown. Right, sweet. So I'm a mutual friend of the other Max. I'm friend of his cousin. That's how we met. Um, my name is Maximilian, and I live on an Instagram page called mxj.info. That's mainly like current event news updates, mainly about conflict and technology and whatnot. That's mainly what I do. Currently living in Toronto, but I usually go back and forth between New York City and Toronto. So, yeah. Perfect. What sort of, you know, you're really into world events and stuff like that. Is, was there a moment that kind of got you into that? Um, probably there's a couple other Instagram pages that I used to follow previously, like before I had my own page. And just the amount of stuff that I'd see them posting that I just literally wouldn't hear about anywhere else. That sort of got me interested in potentially starting a page. And then I just decided to go through with it. Probably at the best time possible. I literally started my page a couple months before Russia invaded Ukraine. So <laughs> worked out. Probably yeah. good timing. Not the best thing, but that. good timing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's where yeah. I go for most of my information. Um, you know, I, I don't know where you find it, but you always find very, very up-to-date information and not only just on the Russia conflict, but other conflicts around the world. And you know, I find it really interesting and it's in line with what we try to promote on our organization, Diversity for Change KC. So, um, you know, starting with Russia, that's obviously the big thing. Um, yeah. A lot of people I talk to, they're like, they don't even know that it's still going on. So oh, yeah. give, give us your, the most up-to-date thing on the situation in Russia um, and your stance on it. In Russia or the conflict as a whole? In, sorry, in Ukraine. Ah, so... The war is sort of shifting pace in the past like, couple of weeks because previously, like when we were seeing it a lot more on the news, most of the combat was taking place in more wooded, like hilly areas. So there was more opportunities for, I guess, what you call like a pop-up attack. Like you'd have a small group of people with anti-tank weapons just popping up and shooting at a convoy. Or there'd be more opportunities for drones to come around and just blow up convoys because there's a lot more like places that people in small squads could cover and whatnot. So there's a lot more opportunity for combat i guess i don't exactly know how to put it but it's like there's more opportunities for strikes against armored targets where you can actually run away and you'd have cover but now because russia's actually pushed by more densely wooden hill, hill like hilly areas it's mainly just open fields at this point so there's not really as many opportunities for that to happen so now it's mainly just armored units that are fighting each other in open fields. Like it's trench warfare. There's still drones in play. Drones still play a very big part, mostly for like ISR reconnaissance, seeing where actual troop movements are. The main thing happening now is Russia's trying to capture Sverdonetsk and they have successfully, I think up to now, they've successfully actually pushed into the town. Um, originally they took part of the, I think it was the northeastern part of the town, and they're sort of slowly pushing the Ukrainians out at this point. But the main thing for me, also one second, my parents, say hi, one sec. Elias, feel free to jump in as well. I honestly, I just, I don't know how he knows all this. Yeah, I know, it's like, they're just going out, so they're just sitting by. But um, as I was saying, basically now because it's mostly, it's more flat ground, it's a lot harder to 
you know, sneak up on a tank with an RPG because they'll see you coming from like a mile away. Um, there's not really any trees for cover unless you're fighting in like an urban combat environment. So if you're actually like within the city, like for example, Svernetsk, you can pop up from the top store of the building and shoot an AT4 at a tank. But it's basically just quicker succession of captured land. That's what's happening now. No, that makes so it's, me... it's picking up pace. Basically. Yeah, the question popped in my head, like all of those weapons and everything being used there, how much um, of those are international weapons that Ukraine is using against Russia? Like how much of a help has that been for them? Um, a lot more. I mean, previously, during the beginning of the war, the most, I guess, useful things that you were seeing being used were probably anti-tank, like, you know, javelins, AT-4s, a lot of American anti-tank systems. And there's also a lot of, I think there were, given to Ukraine but like Sweden, Germany actually ended up shipping them Panzerfaust anti-tank weapons. Originally they didn't want to ship them weapons at all, but they ended up shifting on that and shipping them Panzerfaust. So in the beginning it was mainly mainly just like portable anti-tank weapons and man pads, portable anti-air weapons. But now because of the shift of I guess landscape, also time of year, because now it's all all those flat fields are not going to be completely muddy because it's not raining all the time. So you're not going to have your vehicles getting stuck. Now, the main important thing would be drones and artillery, which Ukraine is starting to get a lot of. Not they, the stuff that's supposed to be given to them, like multiple launch rocket systems, like the M1907 that the US is going to give them, those haven't all fully shown up. But you have now M117s, they're long-range artillery systems. They haven't been confirmed to have been used, but there's some instances where you have like Russian convoys trying to cross a river per se, and you have like 50 plus vehicles destroyed, right? So that sort of points towards probably more advanced artillery being used, most likely. But the most important weapons that are being transferred to Ukraine now will probably be drones and artillery systems. Drones mainly for like actually spotting um, enemy vehicles and convoys. So they know where on like a grid map to point in those artillery strikes into. And I guess one other interesting thing to point out would be usually artillery systems use sort of a, a blanket weapon. So if you have like a map, it's usually a grid map, and what you're usually classically going to do with artillery is you take one of those squares and you strike that whole square, and it's like a carpet, basically. It doesn't, it's not like a precision strike weapon. I'm not exactly sure the methodology behind it, but Ukraine has been able to use artillery for precision strikes. Um, like you can have a small like town and you can have a BTR and like four personnel in one area and you'll see shells falling like right around that specific area. And what my best guess on that would be is probably using drones to actually do reconnaissance and figure out exactly where they are before sending an artillery, most likely. Got it. Um, I wanted to ask, so how has, or, you know, it, a lot has changed. Like Russia initially were trying to get it to Kiev. I saw that they yeah. Kiev again just the other day, but they yeah. focused their efforts towards the east. Um, I know that you don't like to make predictions. Like all of this is based off of what you've been reading, what you've been watching, seeing. Sort of where does it look like it's going if they do capture the east? Are they going to keep pushing through? Like how, what, what are you thinking there? Uh, my personal opinion is they might be able to capture, I mean, 
I think it's possible they'll capture like Lushansk and the, the you know Donetsk, Donetsk region, weird pronunciation, but Donetsk. Um, I think that is somewhat likely now, um, just because they picked up pace quite a lot and their military is more geared, the Russian military is more geared towards the type of combat that they're seeing now, which is basically open fields and long distance engagements, mostly with artillery. So I see it being quite possible that they do take that eastern part of the region before they cross the Lviv River. I don't think they're the most optimistic outcome from a Russian perspective is that they captured Donetsk or everything up until you hit the Lviv River. I don't think, I think it would be futile to try to cross that river, especially just because by the time they would capture all of the region east of the river, they probably have exhausted a lot of the resources that they've already put towards the conflict. So I think it's possible that they capture the eastern region of Ukraine before they hit the Lviv River, but I also see it as it depends on how long it takes them because Ukraine is also training reserves and they're also getting more and more weapon systems from the West. So if they can do it before the majority of that gets there, then maybe, but then it becomes an issue holding it. Like I think personally, yeah, Russia can probably take it, but the main issue with a war like this is not taking it, but it's actually holding it like after the fact. That's my main my main thing. I don't think they'll be able to hold it. I think maybe they'll be able to take it, yes, but I don't think they're going to be able to hold it because that's a lot more expensive and it takes a lot more manpower to hold it. Gotcha. Speaking of manpower, speaking of exhausting resources, I know there's so many different sort of contrasting numbers that you get put out, but do you sort of have an estimate of what the casualties look like, not only in personnel, but in military vehicles and stuff like that on both sides? Um. Yeah, I mean, mainly, I think in, on the Russian side, this was a couple of weeks ago, so I'm assuming it's quite a lot higher than this. This is published from Ukrainian sources, though, so it should be probably taken with a small grain of salt. Um, they claim that I think it was about 35,000 Russian K are captured, which is a lot. Um, and at this point, as far as vehicles go, you should have probably, this has been visually confirmed, maybe over a thousand pieces of Russian hardware destroyed, like visually, independently confirmed, just from photography. So that's not counting the official Ukrainian numbers that have been put out. If you look at the actual official Ukrainian numbers, you have probably about a thousand armor personnel carriers, maybe about 800 tanks. You have, I think, seven or eight boats now, um, about a hundred planes. That's also considering drones. Um, I think 200 helicopters or so. And with Ukraine, you probably have, as far as soldiers KA are captured, probably a similar amount, probably a bit less though. I'd say my best guess would be maybe about 15 to 20,000. Because in some parts in the East, losing about 100 to 200 people a day, according to Ukrainian sources. So those sort of add up. No, absolutely does. And yeah. Yeah, we'll go for it. Okay, sorry. So I just wanted to like continue and ask, since you know there's so many numbers and stuff being thrown out, um, like how do you make like how do you verify that? What do you what do you do to well make sure everything's like at least pretty accurate? The best thing that you can do is sort of correlate visually confirmed losses with the actual published losses. So let's say Ukraine says, Oh, we've destroyed. 800 tanks 
you know, or it's just a random number that I'm throwing out there. I don't, know, I don't remember the exact number, but let's say they say we've destroyed 800 tanks. There's a couple websites that what they'll do is they'll put together like a database of all, like, I guess the pictures that have been released during conflicts. And they'll look at those pictures, then they'll analyze them and see like what country they're from. So if there's a Russian vehicle that's been destroyed, they'll add it to the list, and there'll be a total uh, counter of like how many vehicles have been destroyed. So you can sort of compare those numbers to the numbers that are put up by Ukrainian media and see how closely they compare. But not all destroyed vehicles or KIA would also, you know, be publicly announced. They're not all going to be photographed. A lot of them might be, but not all of them would be. But if the numbers correlate pretty closely, then you can probably assume it's pretty accurate. Now, last thing I want to touch on with the Ukraine-Russia conflict is war crimes. Now, before we talk about like uses of weapons, like chemical yeah. weapons and stuff like that, something I saw in your story was um, that there's been like 55 internment camps for Ukraine. Yeah. This is from Mariupol across Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that obviously, it seems like history repeating itself a bit. And then there's also been images of mass graves that you've put out. Um, can you sort of touch touch on that a bit? Um, well, the main, I think the main reason that there's, there's a couple of reasons why I think civilian casualties in some areas might be so high. It's mainly probably because of how the weapons themselves are being used. Um, like I said previously, Ukraine is somehow using artillery as a precision weapon, which usually it isn't. But Russia's main, like a big part of their military doctrine is just blanket artillery. Like literally you have an enemy that direction, you just shell the hell out of that direction with missiles, rockets, and those missiles and rockets are not accurate. You can't really guide them in. So if you're trying to capture a city like Mariupol, for example, which basically what happens is they just bomb the hell out of it with rockets, shells, et cetera, et cetera. And if people don't get out of there before the, you know, the shelling starts, people are going to die regardless. And as far as other weapons, I think there's only a couple times that chemical weapons have been claimed to be used. Um, once at Azovstal, there was like, this hasn't been confirmed, but there was sort of anecdotal reports of like people not being able to breathe or having similar symptoms to some lacrimatory agents, which is like something that prevents breathing, basically. Um, there's also been claims of phosphorus being used. Um, but the thing is that's weird about that is a lot of the videos and footage that have been put out like relating to that it could maybe be like flares it doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily phosphorus it could just be like incendiary it could just be something like that visually looks similar but it's not indeed phosphorus but i wouldn't be surprised if phosphorus was indeed used um and as far as those internment camps basically my understanding of it is that after they capture city like for example Mariupol if there's a still a large amount of people there that they basically transport them back into Russia at these camps for like a re-education basically um there's not really much known about the internment camps in Russia at least not that I've seen I just know that there's like a, I think it's about 50,000 people or something like that That's a lot um and there's I think 10 to 15 different sites just sort of dotting around Russia, but I'm not exactly sure what's happening at those sites. Um, But yeah. 
Got it. Well, hopefully it's not something similar to China and we get images coming out of some human rights stuff going on there. Um, you know, speaking of human rights too, I saw, again, I saw this from you. I get most of my information from you. Um, there has been one man charged in an international court with war oh. crimes. Um, yeah. Do you see more of that coming from the um, Russian? It was a, the foreign, like from the foreign region? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, it was three people that got charged. Okay. Um, yeah. And basically what Russia said is they were technically fighting these mercenaries because they were from foreign legion and because they were actually sentenced to death. Um, they do have a month to appeal, apparently. Um, but in my opinion, it, it's just, it's bullshit. Mainly because there's literally photos of some of these people that got sentenced to death by Russia reading the, oh, this is an oath that you have to read before you join the Ukrainian army. They're like formally part of the Ukrainian army. They're not just foreign nationals fighting for Ukraine for pay. So technically speaking, they're just formally enlisted. So they're, they're actual soldiers enlisted in the Ukrainian army. They're not mercenaries. So that shouldn't hold up, but Russia being Russia, either for propaganda purposes or just to piss off the countries they come from, which is one of them is British, one of them is from Morocco, and the third one I don't remember. One of them has an Instagram page as well. Um, who, when, he, like before he got captured, would post updates about what's happening. Um, but yeah, they got sentenced to death. So, yeah, yeah, crazy stuff. Lots of loss of human life. Um, so we'll move on now uh, to something that almost does tie into, it, and that's China. There could be more, more loss of human life, more conflict here, uh, specifically relating to China Taiwan. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you're very knowledgeable with this. Where are we at now with that? Sort of, people probably don't know much about it either. So we can give a little bit of background too. Um, well, basically, the main thing with China and Taiwan is China, it's part of its, like, it's literally part of its law that they want to reunify Taiwan with mainland China, either by political means or by force. And basically what their end game is, is if, if they can't get Taiwan to join mainland China by political means, they legally and will use force. Um, and I guess the most recent thing that I've seen happened is there was a, a press conference where there was a high-ranking like, Chinese military. I forget the actual name, this happened literally yesterday. Um, and they basically said what I just went over that if they can't peacefully get Taiwan to join they, were, they, they also said that if Taiwan publicly de like declares independence, that they will not hesitate to use, to, you know, start a war, basically. Um, so it's mainly over Taiwan's independence. Also, you can see my cat in the corner over there. So, yeah. But that's the main thing is they want to reunify Taiwan to China. And they see Taiwan as part of China, just like as a rogue part of China, basically. What would war mean? Um, well, the thing is, is if China and Taiwan, Taiwan went to war, I feel like that would probably be a lot more dangerous for the world than the war with Ukraine and Russia. And the main reason that I think that would be the case is because of how tied in to the world economy China is when you compare it to Russia. Because when Russia started the invasion of Ukraine, it was already sanctioned quite a lot. Their economy is not really intertwined with every other country's economy. But when you look at, for example, China, 
how many of the products do you have sitting around you from that? Right? Probably quite a lot of them. So, and another thing that you have to consider with Taiwan is a lot of the semiconductor market is coming out of Taiwan. I think it's around 80% of the world's semiconductors are manufactured in Taiwan. It's also another reason that I, that China would also want Taiwan to be part of mainland China because that's used in basically all your military hardware, all your electronics, your phones, your computers, everything. Um, so you have an electronic shortage, you'd have probably a lot of goods and whatnot, you'd have a shortage of that. And also just for the world economy itself, you'd probably see a very big downturn in wealth generally in the world. And then if you have the US getting involved, that can become a whole different uh, thing. Because you have two superpowers going at it at that point, and that would be, you know, bad. Yeah, as well as NATO, right? Um, well, technically speaking, NATO, I don't know if NATO would get involved in China, per se. Probably some countries would. If I had to guess, probably the UK would, definitely. UK, US, maybe Canada. But I don't know if the rest of the NATO members would. Taiwan's not part of NATO, Japan's not part of NATO, South Korea's not part of NATO. But you definitely have South Korea and Japan also get involved as well as Australia. So, yeah. Speaking of NATO, I hate to go back on it, but real quick on Lithuania, you made a post about that. Oh, yeah. Well, what's, this, what's the story there? Um, basically, Russia put out a statement saying that they don't recognize Lithuania's territorial independence because it used to be part of the USSR. Um, which is completely outrageous. I don't think anyone's gonna take it seriously, but I think it's just sort of, you know, it, it, it sort of shows where Russia's at right now, in my opinion, sort of like, it's just ridiculous. But basically that's the gist of it, is they're saying that Lithuania's territorial independence is not recognized within Russia because it used to be part of the Soviet Union. Well, that could, they could do the same for a lot of other countries. So yeah, they could. Estonia. You can see false Britain. flag operations and see a possible invasion of Lithuania next? Um, I doubt it. It's a NATO country. Yeah. I doubt it. And you also have like Sweden and Finland who are trying to join NATO. Then you have Turkey fucking blocking their, you know, blocking them from joining because they find the DKK or whatever. And the thing with the thing with that that's interesting is this sort of jumping topics, but the claims about Sweden and Finland from the PKK, it's not, it's technically partially true, but it's not the government that's funding it. It's independent groups within those countries that are funding it. So the blame shouldn't be put on the Finnish and Swedish government. It should be put on those independent groups that are sending funding. I don't even think the funding is purposely getting there. I think it's just being funneled that direction when it gets into Syria, most likely. I don't think it's purposely being sent directly to the PKK. Um, and I guess one other thing about Sweden and Finland joining is if they do join, there's, it's not the phosphorus strait, it's, um, I forget the name of the body of the water, but this basically where the Russian Northern fleet comes up, they would have to go through that area of water and they also have Kalinograd. So basically, NATO countries share information about like 
if they see submarines going by. So Russia would have to go all the way around to reach Europe or the United States. They wouldn't be able to go out of Europe without having submarines get detected. So that's sort of like a big thing. And then Russia also has all their nuclear weapons stored right off the border with Finland and Sweden. And it's only connected by one railroad, <laughs> believe it or not. So that's also another sort of tension raising thing. Well, hopefully it doesn't escalate further. Um, hopefully not. Yeah, we got we got 10 minutes here. So I just want to move on to international conflicts and how, how it affects people, specifically people in America, people at home. Okay. Um, you sort of hit on, you know, we got rising gas prices, stuff like that. Yeah. How, how does it affect the people themselves? Um, I guess the main thing, at least for me, which I'm assuming is similar to a lot of people, if they try to keep updated on world events in the news, is if you're just seeing all this stuff every day on the news and the screen in front of you, it sort of gets a bit depressing. And to a lot of people that I know, it sort of makes them feel like we're on the brink of like, I don't know, the third world war or something like that, which we're not. Because the thing with news that I usually see, at least like mainstream sources, is they sort of amplify the fear associated with it. Um, like, no, the war in Ukraine does not mean that we're on the brink of world war at all. We're not up to that point, not at all. But I feel like some of these, some you know, some news would make it feel like that or seem like that, which is probably not the best thing because it just stirs people up more than they have to be, and it might sort of influence people's opinions to be more negative towards certain people, countries, situations where they don't necessarily have to be. And the main thing with the Ukraine and Russia that I would be worried about is not necessarily oil; it would be grain. Um, because Russia and Ukraine produce, I think it's like 70 to 80% of the world's wheat. Um, that's going to be a problem for food prices. Like, let's say you're a farmer in the United States and you're growing, not wheat, but you have like cows, for example. You have to feed them, right? Um, the prices of the feed that you're giving to your animals is going to go way up. So because the price of the feed that you're feeding your animals is going to go way up, the price of meat is going to go up, the price of dairy is going to go up, the price of grain is going to go up, the price of bread is going to go up. The U.S., it's not like we're not going to have food because we produce a lot of our own food, grain, meats, et cetera, but it's like usually we export a large portion of that. So either you have lower revenue from exports or food prices just skyrocket, um, which that is starting to be seen in some countries in Africa and the Middle East because they are not getting their grain exports from Ukraine. A lot of those countries are reliant on grain exports. But I think it's possible that we start seeing something similar to that in the US in the coming months, weeks, months. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. I'd be more worried about food than oil. But yet it's also, as I said, with oil, it's the same. It's basically the same. Awesome. Well, uh, we always try to promote, you know, peace amongst the countries. I mean, I'm sure you would love to see that too. That would be um, amazing. Yeah. yeah. You know, take five minutes here. Another conflict though, Iran and Israel. I know you want to touch on this a bit. So, um, but you know, it's another one people probably don't know too much about. Um, so yeah. what's going on there right now? Um, so the main thing that's happening right now back here in Israel is they're using I'm assuming most people have heard of Hamas. 
Um, if not, Hamas is basically a, it's a group that is within mostly Palestine. They have some foothold in Iraq and mainly in Iran, and they're basically fighting a proxy war with Israel in Jordan and in Palestine. And recently, um, the main thing that's been happening recently between Iran and Israel is there's been a lot of people getting assassinated in Israel, or not Israel, in Iran. Recently, there's been a lot of people getting assassinated in Iran. Um, there was recently, I think last week, two weeks ago, there was a, not a nuclear scientist, but a scientist that works on like drone technology that apparently collapsed, uh, went to the hospital, and apparently it was ruled to be natural causes, but local media there is saying they think he got poisoned, et cetera, et cetera. Last month back, there was, it was not a scientist. Um, it was like a high-ranking colonel general or something like that. He was in a car um, in Tehran, the capital of Iran. Um, basically, a car came on the front, forced him to turn. At the end of that street, those two dudes on bikes go right up behind him and just pepper the car with bullets and gun. Israel sort of has a history of killing Iran's nuclear scientists, um, mainly because Iran is pursuing a nuclear program and Israel being their main rival doesn't want them to have nukes. But the thing that's sort of critical about that when you really think about it is Israel has nukes. They don't really publicly ever admit it, but it's well known that they do actually have a nuclear program and they most likely have about 80 or so warheads. So, it's a bit hypocritical, but the main actual thing that's raising tensions is not only, you know, assassination of scientists and military officials and whatnot. It's also that Israel is not treating people in Palestine that great. They usually go in and evict people out of their houses and then sort of give that land to Israeli nationals. And when people protest, they either sometimes have gotten killed, um, have gotten hospitalized, have gotten, you know, pepper sprayed, shot, you know, uh, rubber bullets, et cetera, et cetera. And recently, I think this was last month, but Israel raided a mosque with people inside of it during a holiday, which is a gross insult to those people. You, it's, 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 it's a holy place for those people. And they went in there, broke down windows through tear gas and shot people with rubber bullets. So basically it's, it's, it's sort of a mix of religious tension. It's a mix of, I guess, assassinations based on Israel not wanting Iran to have nuclear weapons. And that's also based on Iran having a proxy conflict with Israel within Palestine. And another, I guess the last thing that's sort of raised tensions is, you know, rockets being shot at Israel and then Israel responding with airstrikes, um, both of which have killed civilians on both sides. But disproportionately, Israel has killed more civilians than um, Hamas in Israel has. Or, yeah, basically, if you look at the actual, like, strictly based on the numbers, Israel has killed more civilians in Jordan than Hamas has in Israel. So, yeah. Hey, that was seriously perfect rundown. Um, we're almost done here. So 
real quick, just if people want to, you know, look at world events themselves, kind of go over how you look at sources, um, okay. just real, real quickly, sort of how do you do that? How can they do that too? So when I'm trying to find out, like, specifically if, like, something's accurate, um, usually when I'm looking at, like, mainstream media, the main thing you should sort of look out for is, is this news agency government-owned? Like if you're looking like RT, for example, that's a Russian government-owned media source. So you can assume that a lot of it's going, you know, going to be biased. Um, even if you're looking at something like, for example, CNN or something else, it might be a bit more accurate because, you know, there's freedom of press here. They're not going to get arrested for saying something that goes against what the government wants people to hear, but it might not have certain details that are important to it. Um, so the best thing to do in my opinion would to be look at different sources and sort of cross cooperate the information in both of them. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. Max, seriously, we could listen to you talk all day. Um, no. I learned a lot just from that. It's truly amazing uh, thank you. the work you do. So thank you so much for coming right. on. Man. Seriously. My pleasure. All right. Awesome. Chat soon. Bye. All right. Bye. See you.